Good morning to all of you. If uh, you haven't been here in a few weeks, or maybe you're a guest with us and you expected Mark Hitchcock to be in the pulpit today, uh, he's not here. He, he won't be here for, oh, about nine or ten more weeks. He's on a summer sabbatical, and some of you have asked me how he's doing. I literally have no idea. I have not talked to him. That means he's Sabbathing well, I think. Uh, some reports from his family says have told me, or they have reported to me that uh, they're doing great. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus, please, the book of Titus. Every pastor I know could write a book, uh, and the title would be, What My Seminary Education Failed to Teach Me. And in it would be chapters like, How to Survive a Business Meeting. How to remember all the things that you're supposed to be praying for. Or maybe on a more solemn note, how to preach the funeral of a child. Or how to love people who think you're the devil. You know, these kinds of things. Pastoral ministry is full of tricky scenarios that no amount of book education can really prepare you for. Like the time that I was called on to do music at a funeral. I was called on to do music at a funeral. Not just prepare the music, but perform the music. Okay, I was up there. I was terrible, but I was waving my arms. I was fully engaged. I don't even know what, what waving your arms really means as you try to lead music, but I was trying to do it as best I could. Twice I've had to do that, actually. But at the same time, there are great blessings in pastoral ministry as well, maybe blessings that you don't see coming. And one of the blessings that I've been experiencing in this recent season of ministry is working with our team of elders here at Faith Bible Church. You have Mark Hitchcock and Jason Fritz and Derry Myers and Monroe Vaughn and Sid Jones and John Brock and Forrest Lacey. These are men who I love. They, they ooze wisdom. They, they model character and maturity. But more than that, these men deeply care about this flock. And to watch them labor for your good is amazing to me. I love these guys. And I bring this up because today we're studying a passage on elders. Last week, we looked at Paul's uh, four-verse greeting to this epistle. I called it a greeting of grace, where Paul lays out his purpose and his passion for ministry as an apostle. And he laid it all out to delegate his apostolic authority to his protege, Titus. Paul is communicating through this letter that the mission he was given from Jesus Christ, he is now giving to Titus. And closing out that greeting, we saw, we looked at just briefly, an extension of grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. The people on Crete are sinful and wicked, and they need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. And his salvation, the salvation that he provides, is one of grace, which is to say it's rooted in God's unconditional election of sinners, and what that saving grace yields is peace with God to all those who believe. So if you've come in this place this morning and you do not have peace with God, you do not get peace with God through striving. You do not get peace with God through coming to church. You do not get peace with God through any effort of your own. You get peace with God through the grace of Jesus Christ. You look to him alone for peace. If you've never done that, do that today. But now this morning, we come to this, this first block of instruction 
that Paul offers in this letter to Titus. Again, the subject is church leadership. Let's read it together. We'll read verse 5 to verse 9. Inspired of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is God's word. We'll break this passage down into two major sections this morning. First, the purpose of Titus in Crete, and then the profiles of elders in the church. But before we get into the body of this letter, I should mention that when you are studying a pastoral epistle, you end up doing a lot of thinking about the church. And when you're thinking about the church, you can be thinking about one of two things. The church is two things. First, there is the universal church. The universal church is comprised of believers everywhere for all time. The universal church is the global expression of Christ on earth. It's comprised of all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. We might refer to this as the capital C church. When we say that the Lord will return for his church, we're talking about the universal church. But the universal church is comprised also of smaller bodies, which are localized expressions of the body of Christ. These are called local churches. Faith Bible Church is a local church. Henderson Hills is a local church. First Baptist is a local church. Fairview Baptist, again, a local church. What makes a local church? Well, there are four basic characteristics of a local church. First, it's a group of people, as I said, who are professing faith in Jesus Christ which means we are a people committed to the word of the apostles and the prophets, the Old and New Testament, and the truth that that word proclaims about the Lord Jesus. And by virtue of that fact alone, something like a Unitarian church is not actually a church. They don't really believe in the testimony that is found in the scriptures. Same goes for a Mormon assembly or a Jehovah's Witness meeting house. These are not churches. They don't believe in the truth as expressed in God's word. Secondly, it's a group of people committed to meeting regularly in a particular geographic area. So a local church is just that. It is localized. A local church doesn't meet in Edmond one week and then Wichita the next week and then San Francisco the week after that. No, it has a geographic placement. Third, it's a group of people who regularly gather for corporate worship. And that worship is made up of several elements. You have prayer. We've done that this morning. You have the preaching of God's word. That's what we're doing now. And then you also have the ordinances, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper. We've done that this morning as well, at least one of those things. These are the core practices of a local church. A local church can do more than these three or four things, 
But it needs to be doing at least these three things. Prayer, the word, and the ordinances, or the sacraments, as some might refer to them. And then fourth, it's a group of people. Notice all of these things are a group of people. A church is not a building. It's not a place. It's a people. It's a group of people assembled under the, uh, the oversight of qualified elders and deacons. Those are the offices in the local church that are prescribed in the New Testament, elders and deacons. The primary office is that of elder, and then, just as we see in Acts chapter 6, when the needs of the church pull elders away from, from their duty of studying the word and of prayer, the church is to appoint deacons who serve in the practical matters of church life. That's what the word deacon means, diakonos. It means servant. So that's a local church. And with those ingredients for a local church, let's get into this outline in front of us this morning. First, the purpose of Titus in Crete. If you go back to your maps in your Bible, uh, which is usually in the final few pages, you'll find Crete. Crete is in the Aegean. It's the fourth largest island in the Mediterranean. So it's in the South Aegean Sea, the North Mediterranean. It's 160 miles long and anywhere from 7 to 30 miles wide. So it's about 3,500 square miles in all. Homer, in his great work, The Iliad, he, he informs us that in the first century, Crete had nearly 100 cities on it. Uh, consensus opinion is over 300,000 people lived on the island. We know that Christianity didn't arrive in Crete with Paul or with Titus because there is record of people from Crete in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So in the early chapters of Acts, when the new converts to Christianity when they returned to their homes, some of them returned to the island of Crete. History on Crete reached all the way back to the Minoans. That's a civilization that existed from about 2700 to 1450 BC, one of the great early empires of the ancient world. The Minoans were likely wiped out by a tsunami that was caused by a massive volcano that erupted on the Greek island of Santorini. Santorini was once an active volcano, and when the big one came in the 15th century BC, it leveled the Minoan civilization on Crete. And in, in about nine days, I'm going to be on the island of Santorini in the Aegean Sea, and I hope that that, that uh, volcano is indeed dormant. <clears throat> Thank you. It's also said that the Philistines, the, the, the warring people that we read about in the Old Testament, they trace some of their origins to the island of Crete. Now, the, the people of the island of Crete, they had a terrible reputation. It was a hub for piracy. Betrayal was seen as a virtue in Crete. Paul quotes a Greek philosopher toward the end of chapter 1 when he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's not exactly a chamber of commerce recommendation for the people of Crete. The people of Crete also claimed that their island was the mythical birthplace of the god Zeus. Zeus was the greatest god in the pantheon of Greek gods, and according to those in Crete, he was born on their island. Consequently, the son of Zeus, the Greek god Dionysus, he was also much revered on, much, much revered on Crete. There are ruins of a temple to Dionysus on Crete. And if you know your Greek mythology, Dionysus was the god of wine, which I'm sure did not add to the virtues of the, Greek, or the Cretan people. But despite its reputation, Crete is a beautiful place. 
It has that beautiful blue Aegean water, lots of sandy beaches. And geographically, what's most, I think, impressive is that in certain parts, you go from sea level to about 8,000 feet. You can actually snow ski on the island of Crete, right? In the span of five miles, you go from sea level to to 8,000-foot peaks. But because of its position in the Mediterranean and its importance as a commercial way uh, way station for shipping, this island was an eclectic mix of cultures and worldviews and religion, but it was really Greek thought that dominated on Crete, which made Titus just an excellent missionary choice. Titus was thoroughly Greek, but the Greek worldview of the Cretans, it was mixed with ancient religion and, 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 and with Judaism and Roman emperor worship and even the religions of North Africa that the sailors and the pirates had picked up and brought that back there existed on Crete. It would have been a beautiful, fascinating, and by the description we have of its citizens, a wicked place. And evidently, by the language used in verse 5, Paul had been to Crete and interacted with some of the churches. And this is a distinct visit from the, 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 uh, the scene at Fair Havens when he's on his way to Rome. He was there and probably worked with the churches sometime between his two imprisonments, which is the thing that led him to say, hey, Titus, let's put what remained in order. There were some things we didn't get done. I'm going to count on you to get those things done. And by saying, put what remained in order, Paul implies that, that again, that work had been left undone in Crete. And to put in order or to straighten out, is, is that, that word is very rare. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Commentators tell us a form of the word was found in Cretan legal documents. So in some sense, Paul is using language that Cretans would have been familiar with and somewhat valued as well. And in Paul's mind, in order to finish what they had started, in order to straighten things out, Titus had to first he had to first appoint elders in every town. That's primary. That's that, that's 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 a first priority in the book of Titus. Appoint elders. So it wasn't buy land, wasn't secure a building, it wasn't work on a mission statement or get your core values lined up. It was appoint elders. The work of putting the church in order was not going to happen unless elders were placed in the churches. And just as an aside, we don't get the impression from what the New Testament says about elders that the office of elder is ever to be held in singular isolation. In the New Testament, the elder is always used in the plural. Elders are to lead and shepherd in the wisdom of their plurality. It takes more than one man to shepherd, lead, and put order in the church. This, this protects the church against any one person with absolute power, and it also protects the elder from his own limitations. So a single pastor elder is not to be king of the local church. He's not to be one who's handing down edicts and orders. He can be a primary servant leader, but only if he is alongside other qualified servant leaders who lead in the wisdom of their plurality. So Christ is the head of every church body. This is universally true. He's the chief shepherd, but Christ calls under shepherds to provide servant leadership to the flock. And so speaking of servant leaders, let's turn now to the profile of elders in the church because there's much to be said 
on this. Beginning in verse 6, Paul gives a list of 17 elder qualifications that can be broken down into three different categories. The elder's domestic life, his personal life, and his doctrinal life. So we have 17 here. We actually have about 23 in all if we look at the whole of the New Testament. 24 if you count the qualification of the man needing to aspire or desire to the office as well. But the profile of elders in the church, before I get into the home life of the elder, which is where Paul goes first, I want you to note just a couple of details. First, I want you to note the gender that is associated with each set of qualifications in your outline there. The gender is masculine. I used the pronoun his, and that was intentional. Intentional because the New Testament pattern is that elders are to be men. Just as husbands are necessarily male and called to be sacrificial servant leaders in the home, elders are also male and called to be sacrificial servant leaders in the church. This passage points to male eldership in two different places. In verse, six, in verse 6, it says the elder is to be the husband of one wife. Husbands are male. Secondly, in verse 9, it says that he, pronoun he, must hold firm to the word of God, which may not by itself seem that conclusive, but in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the other major passage that explains the qualifications of an elder, the masculine pronoun he or his, it is used nine times in seven verses. And what's really telling about that is that that passage, the, 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 excuse me, the passage that immediately follows that one in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the passage that gives the qualifications for deacons, in those six verses, all the pronouns related to deacons are gender neutral. So that's not an insignificant detail that in describing elders, there's a masculine pronoun used. In describing deacons, there's a gender-neutral pronoun used throughout those verses. But the male exclusivity of the elder office is certainly not to say that, that men are more gifted or smarter or better leaders. None of that. Plenty of women in a church are smarter, smarter and more gifted and probably better at leadership than men. Paul is not communicating that men are somehow better. That's not what's being displayed here. It's simply to say that, that the order of leadership in the church mirrors what God has also ordered in the family. It doesn't make the male offices of husband and elder more important than those of the female. It just makes them distinct from one another. And that's actually a really good thing. Now, I don't have to tell you this, but God has made each gender different. Different. Very much so. Look around. We're very different. And their differences equip them to take on certain roles. The roles themselves are not to be viewed as more or less important. They are simply to be viewed as different. And this is so important in our day because many, many people want to argue against those differences. But to argue against them actually flattens the distinctions between men and women. And what that fundamentally does is it distorts what, mean, what it means for both men and women to be made in God's image. And we don't want to distort that. So we have election in week one. And now gender roles in week two. You guys need to stick around for this Titus study. We're going to really get into some good stuff here, all right? 
But back to the outline, the, the elder's domestic life. Note the first two occasions in this passage where it said that the elder must be above reproach. Some of your versions might say blameless. This is sort of a general umbrella qualification, but it does not mean that the elder has to be sinless. If it meant that, there would be no elders. It just means that the elder is to be unchargeable, which is to say because of his character and because of his reputation, he is a man who negative accusations they have difficulty sticking to. He's blameless. He's tough to blame. One translation says that, that you can't put handles on him. So accusations have, uh, there, there, there's, a, there's a difficulty when it comes to holding on to stuff being uh, accused of him. Maritally, the text says that he has to be the husband of one wife. There's lots of thinking about what this means. I'll quickly mention five of the views. Again, I'll do this quickly. First, some say that this is a prohibition against polygamy, the husband of one wife. But I doubt this is the author's intent because there was little to no polygamy in the Roman, Greek, and Judaic culture. So I don't think this is a text referencing polygamy. Now, there's plenty wrong with polygamy. We don't endorse polygamy, but I don't think that's what's being talked about here. Second, some say husband of one wife is a prohibition against divorce and remarriage, that, that, that an elder cannot be remarried after a divorce. And I don't think this is the meaning because the Bible gives exceptions that allow for remarriage when a divorce occurs because of infidelity or abandonment or one of those things. Third, people say that this is a prohibition against remarriage, period. So if a spouse dies, a man is disqualified for eldership if he remarries, which that isn't true because 1 Corinthians 7.31 allows for remarriage in a circumstance like that one. And so as long as that marriage is to a believer, of course. The fourth view is that the elder has to be married. That, that marriage is a prerequisite for the role of elder. And I can't agree with this because if that were the case, Paul would not be qualified to be an elder. We don't think Paul was married. Jesus wouldn't qualify to be an elder. Or even Titus. We know Titus was an unmarried man. So it says husband of one wife, not husband of a wife. Therefore, it's not saying that he has to be married. The fifth view, which is the one I take to be the correct view, is that he is a man who is sexually pure. The literal translation of this phrase is that he's a one-woman man. This means the elder is to be a man faithful to his spouse. He doesn't have women on the side. He's not an adulterer. He's not flirtatious. He's not given over to lust or pornography. He's a one-woman man. Sounds like a good country and western song, doesn't it? A one-woman man. So that's half of the elder's home life. The second half has to do with his children. An elder doesn't have to have children to qualify for the office. But if he does, it says his children are to be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The word for believer there in verse 6 is the word pistos, which means faithful or trustworthy. Some English translations actually use the word faithful in the verse. And the reason I point this out is because I don't think an elder's children have to be believers. 
Now, I say this for a few reasons. One, this qualification is not used in 1 Timothy 3 when describing the elder's children. This is unique to Titus. I think a qualification this definite would likely be repeated in both lists. Second, a a father cannot ultimately control whether the child is a believer or not a believer. Salvation is of the Lord, not of the dad. Third, grown children are completely removed from fatherly influence. So perhaps a man comes to faith in Christ after his kids leave home. He matures in faith and is a godly example. Would he be disqualified for eldership on the basis of influence he never had the chance to have? No, he wouldn't. So I don't think this is a wooden mandate that's saying an elder's children have to be Christian. I do think it's saying the elder's kids have to be faithful in honoring their father, which explains the rest of the verse, that they not be open to dissipation or rebellion, debauchery, insubordination, these different translations. So the elder has to have kids that want to honor him and and, and want to live lives that don't bring reproach upon him. We're not talking about perfect kids or kids that don't screw up from time to time. We're talking about kids that generally honor and respect and love their father. If a child can't give his father respect, there's usually a reason for that, and it's often found in the character of the father. I like how one pastor said it. He said, the home is the proving ground for life and ministry. If you can't manage a household and you can't shepherd your kids, how would you do it with a church family? All right, let's jump now to his personal life. This section is essentially outlining the elder's character. And as we go through this, what you see is, is the elder is to serve as an example to the larger body. A domestic example, as we've covered, and now a personal example. We're we're given five vices and six virtues in these two verses. But again, the general qualification there is repeated in verse 7, that he is to be above reproach. This idea of blamelessness. Not unblemished, that's a different word, but blameless. And here we're given a reason why he is to be blameless, because he is God's steward. The elder is an overseer of the things that belong to God. In the time that this was written, the the term steward, it came out of the common practice of a particular slave serving his master by managing the affairs of the household. He, He didn't own the household. He served the owner by wisely bearing the responsibilities that were entrusted to him. Stewardship was obligatory, faithful service. That's the work of an elder. And the term overseer, which is a synonym of elder, it simply means to provide oversight. It's a a different word than elder, but the term overseer and pastor and elder, these are all used interchangeably in the New Testament. They all point to the same office and its varied functions in the church. But in regards to his personal life, we first see that he's not to be arrogant or self-willed. Commentator Philip Towner, he gave an excellent definition of self-willed in his commentary on Titus. He said, to be self-willed is a fundamental selfishness that compels one to ride roughshod over others in an effort to satisfy oneself. So the complete opposite of considering others better than yourself is someone 
uh, who is arrogant or self-willed. Second thing is quick-tempered. This is pretty obvious. Proverbs has a lot to say about those who are quick-tempered or those who are easily angered. Proverbs 22 says, Make no friendship with a man who is given to anger. This word describes those characterized by an explosive lack of control over their anger. So you're not to have any incredible hulks on the elder board, right? No guys that just get out of control. Or a drunkard or violent. And you see these two vices together in both Titus and in Timothy because there's this idea that one leads to another. Drunkenness or excessive drinking, it leads to violence. Again, country music seems to validate this as well. <clears throat> Some of your versions say not addicted to wine. So, so what we have here is not a, a, a prohibition against drinking alcohol. Remember, Paul urged Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach. We need to be careful not to equate drunkenness with, with moderate or mild consumption. These are not the same thing. But not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for gain. 1 Timothy 3 states it as free from the love of money. So this isn't saying that the elder can't have wealth or that the elder or pastor has to be poor. It just means he isn't using his influence as an elder for financial advancement. If he's leading the way financially, it should mean that he's leading the way in generosity. He's more excited about giving money than making money. Again, this is all part of modeling faithfulness before the congregation. The, the Cretans, they were without, thoroughly without good examples. Their spiritual leadership was pathetic. They, they had bad doctrine, and they lived in a way that was not distinct from this world. They needed their elders to model Christian living, thus the high calling that we see Paul putting in place. So those are the vices. Now let's look at these six virtues. First, hospitable. Hospitable. This, this simply refers to gladly opening your home to both friends and strangers. Again, there were no church buildings in the first century. The early church was a house church movement. Therefore, the elders, it required of them to be hospitable. There were also few inns or hotels. Christian travelers were best taken care of in the homes of other Christians. So hospitality has nothing to do with a woman's ability to turn what she finds on Pinterest into a reality, right? It, it's not about making a home lovely. It's about openness to outsiders. It's about viewing what God has given you as not your own, but as a tool for ministry. There's nothing wrong with a lovely home. There's nothing wrong with being good at, at decorating for a dinner party, but that's not what it means to be hospitable, not in the biblical sense. He has a love for what is good. That's pretty self-explanatory. This is an elder's inclination to pursue good things and pursue good people, people of virtue. To be self-controlled, just a basic fruit of the Spirit. Again, a trait which is key to the exemplary life. Upright, just, or fair, basically honest. People want to do business with this man. People know they can trust him. The next, the next word is holy. This doesn't mean perfectly righteous. It just means set apart for God. So, so Christ is the, is the Lord of the elder's life, and it's evident to those who watch him live that he lives a life that is set apart. 
and then disciplined. This means he's not mastered by pleasures. He's not mastered by his own body and its many appetites, but he's, but he's temperate. He's restrained to God's will. It's interesting, in some reading I did this week, many of these traits, these are what the Greeks referred to as the cardinal virtues. And what Paul does is simply co-ops them for his divine purposes. He uses language and virtues that the Cretans would already revere and applies them to the work of a church leader, which brings us to the final category, his doctrinal life. In verse 9, we encounter the one competency that the elder must have, and this is where we see what the elder does. Interesting, to this point, we've just described the man. We've unpacked his character. We, We haven't said what he has to do. We haven't talked about something he has to be competent at. And so this last verse says that the elder does three things. He holds firm to the word of God, applying it to his life. He is committed to teaching sound doctrine. And then he's ready to rebuke those who oppose sound doctrine. So that first one, he must hold firm or fast to the word. Since elders serve the body as examples... They must have a strong grasp of the gospel and how it applies to all of life. The elder is to live and breathe the truth of the gospel. He must find delight in digging into scripture. He doesn't just prepare lessons to teach, but he embraces the word as as crucial for his own soul. He must hold firm to the word. He must be committed to sound doctrine. To put it simply, doctrine matters to an elder. But here's what you need to understand. Just because an elder loves and understands doctrine, he doesn't necessarily have to be a gifted teacher. A guy who can stand up front and deliver well-organized lessons. Not every elder has to be able to do that. The guy just has to be able to sit down with someone and talk about doctrine, be able to explain it, answer questions, give instruction, provide clarity. Nowhere is it said an elder has to possess the gift of teaching. In fact, you can have the gift of teaching and not be qualified to be an elder. They're not one and the same. And then third, he must be ready and willing to rebuke those who oppose sound doctrine. Since Paul explained that, it, that an elder must not be quick-tempered or, or a bully, it goes without saying that he doesn't relish confrontation. Yet when the gospel is at stake, when, when the health and the unity and the vibrancy of the local church is at stake, when, when someone is on the brink of spiritual or moral collapse, the elders, they rise and run to that challenge. They're not going around trying to pick doctrinal fights, but they are, they, they are rushing to the battle when they need to be there. One man said elders are to be a spiritual SWAT team ready to engage anyone that would bring threat to the body of Christ. I like how John Calvin said it. He said, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for driving away the wolves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. And just to conclude, as I said in my introduction, one of my greatest delights in ministry is being able to serve together with my fellow elders. Just just knowing that I don't stand alone or that I don't minister alone or bear burdens alone, it's just something that constantly encourages me in ministry. 
And at the end of this month, as you probably know, we're going to install two new elders, Roger Britton and Clay Bullard. You're going to learn about them in the subsequent weeks as they'll have um, an insert in the bulletin just giving you their testimonies. And, and we, we give you the opportunity to provide feedback to us. If you think an elder candidate that we've put forward is somehow not qualified as it relates to these qualifications that we've looked at this morning, you need to to give us that feedback and provide for us that concern so that we can take the necessary steps. But what excites me about Faith Bible Church is, I, is that I believe that there are other men in this body that God is preparing to serve in the role of elder. Maybe next year, maybe in five years, maybe in 15 years, but I pray frequently that the Lord might call more men to serve this body in this Way. And this is not just finding good men. This is not just finding warm bodies or, or, or the sucker that might think, you know, he has the time over the next three years, right? This is about calling men who are, who are indeed called to the role, the one who is willing to lay down his life and, 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 and die for the sheep, the people of Faith Bible Church. But remember, as First Thessalonians 5 instructs, Please pray for your elders. Pray for them. We're not some Jedi council with special powers. <laughs> we, we most often feel like the opposite of that is true. We feel unworthy for the task in front of us. So please pray for us. Because if this passage is any indication for a church to be in order, it must have good elders. I'd like for you to stand. We're going to combine the closing prayer and the benediction this morning. We're not a church that observes closely <clears throat> the church calendar, but if we were, today would be our recognition of Trinity Sunday. And I found this prayer for Trinity Sunday, and I'm going to use it as our benediction this morning. It reads, Almighty and everlasting God, you have given to us your servants' grace by the confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity and in the power of your divine majesty to worship the unity. Keep us steadfast in this faith and worship and bring us at last to see you in your one and eternal glory. O Father, who with the Son and the Holy Spirit live and reign, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Go in his grace and peace this morning. You're dismissed.